On this week's episode of Where We Are, Italy elected Georgia Maloney as its next prime minister, and this has resulted in a renewed conversation about nationalism, identity, the right wing in politics in the West, and how Christians ought to relate to it. And we're going to talk about those issues on this week's episode. You're listening to Where We Are. You're listening to Where We Are. We are the Wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. It's good to be back with you for a new episode of Where We Are, hosted by the That Sounds Fun Network, of course. Melissa, we just returned. Uh, The kids are in bed after Mm -hmm. really a special day for you, (laughs) special day for the family. It started at Target, uh-huh. and I, I think the report out that I've received from you so far is that was magical. Because you have, never go to Target with me. So having the whole family out at Target, I got to, I mean, what I got out of the deal was a little apple crisp macchiato situation, uh, so it's officially fall. Uh, yeah, pumpkin spice, no, I, I don't we do pumpkin do spice. We do not like pumpkin spice. Ugh. For me, it's the it's the apple uh, apple season. We're going apple picking next weekend. That's going to yeah. be fun. But then, and this is going to be surprising for some of y'all. It's going to be a shock. I have an explanation. We went to Olive Garden. Yes. And we Michael, go to Olive Michael, in yeah. the middle of Target, looks over at me and he goes, you know what we should do for dinner tonight? We should go to Olive Garden. And he, he was so conspiratorial about it. Yeah. No. So here, here's the thing. If you look at it from one direction, oh, uh, Michael talks about being Italian all the time. He makes his own pasta. He scolds you all if you cook it wrong, and you talk about it on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, he has very definite views on Italian cooking. The Olive Garden doesn't make any sense. And if that's the only way you're looking at it, I agree with you. It makes no sense. Here's the other way of looking at it, which is... Uh, Melissa and I are two blue-collar kids uh, for whom, growing up, Olive Garden... It was a nice dinner. It was a Like, you were celebrating something. When if you, you were hear your to, family. <laughs> yeah, like, and, I mean, you all know, it's the breadsticks, it's the salad, it's, it's, it's beautiful. There's something about Olive Garden... That transcends space, time. And here's the here's the sticking point. Transcends culture. So this is where... So look, enjoy Olive Garden. Feel freedom to go to Olive Garden. We do. No judgment here. And I, I'm actually quite opposed to the elitism that shames people for going to Olive Garden. Just don't say it's your favorite Italian restaurant. <laughs> that's the only place. That's the only place I draw the line. Uh, I'll even accept the paradoxical, nonsensical Olive Garden is my favorite restaurant, but not my favorite Italian restaurant. Now, right on a logical level, that makes no sense. If it's your favorite restaurant, it has to be your favorite Italian restaurant. But here's the thing: 
Not really Italian. They had something on the menu when we went there today. It was chick. I think. I think. Don't quote me on this. Chicken and shrimp carbonara. Yeah, uh, I don't know. What yeah, that, that is. doesn't exist. That's not a thing. Uh, you, don't do that. Um, if all you have is bacon, yeah, that'll be a carbonara. <laughs> and if you have guanciale, then yes, that is really a carbonara. Then you're making progress. But chicken and shrimp carbonara. Come on now. But look, if you go to Olive Garden and just say. We're going to have a nice meal. We're going to have some salads, some breadsticks. Uh, not have the most authentic Italian experience in my life. Uh, do it. It's wonderful. Ilaria, 18 months she old. Usually, hoovered. Oh, my goodness. She sat at a, at a real chair for the first time, so she just Loved felt it. like she was the big kid on campus. And then she just hoovered her little shells with meat sauce. She is usually just the wiggliest worm. You can't get her still. She, uh, we may have talked about this on a previous episode, but she turns her, into liquid. Her bone structure dissolves, <laughs> and she becomes pure goop <laughs> as she uh, evades any human containment, except for at Olive Garden, apparently, because the second they put those shells with meat sauce in front of her, folks, she went. 25 minutes, the girl did not move except to ask for apple juice. And she, like, <laughs> completely decimated. And I feel so... So I took Saoirse to the dentist this morning. Yeah. And it's true. We don't give the girls juice at we home. Don't. No. But I did. It was kind of funny. Uh, you know, the dentist was like, you know, mostly water, milk. And I'm like, yeah, we barely give the girls juice. And then I'm looking the, at them tonight with, like, two, like... <laughs> Well, they honking, they honking things of they apple juice. I'm like that apple juice. I hope the dentist doesn't walk by at this point. He'll be like, "You liar!" All uh, I can say is that I think Ilaria Chiro—that's her name, Ilaria Chiro—where walked into Olive Garden tonight, and she was like, "This is my place. This is my yeah. name. my name is Ilaria Chiro. I have to be this way." Well, it turns out to make a transition here, Melissa, that. The question of what's authentically Italian is not only controversial when it comes to Olive Garden, but also to Italian politics itself. Yeah, uh, and leadership. So, and so uh, uh, let's let's move into the the substance of the episode. Although I think people will get a lot out of the Olive Garden debate, <laughs> but <laughs> but let's get to the substance. Melissa, could you just update folks on what happened in Italy last week and, and just a bit of the context around that? Yes, I will. So last week, last Sunday, Georgia Maloney, the the leader of the Brothers of Italy party, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, um, her coalition of right-wing parties um, took 44% of the vote. So Georgia Maloney is the next prime minister of Italy. She will be the first female prime minister of Italy. And for many, it's a bit confounding because... You can read the media, the press, scholarship, Italian press itself, and hear Georgia herself and her party in this coalition defined in several different ways. In Italy, you'll read that she's center-right or a right-wing leader. In a lot of American or European publications, you'll read that she's a far-right, a neo-fascist leader and um, part of a uh, that kind of party. And so... It caught a lot of attention this past week. Um, Obviously, Italy is a very powerful country. It's a powerful member of the EU, but it caught more attention than normal because of a lot of the a lot of the questions and conversations around nationalism and fascism. 
especially because Europe has, you know, for the past 40, 50 years, been sort of a bastion of this kind of um, ideolo- ideology and... Um, these political parties have been percolating for for that long, but to see someone actually win the leadership in a very powerful country um, has set off a little bit of a, a few alarm bells. Definitely has set off a few alarm bells in the EU um, because Italy is a not just a member of the EU; it's a member of the eurozone. And I mean, this week President President Biden even expressed uh-huh. concern. Yeah, President so. Biden expressed concern, and for me, so that I'm completely clear, I definitely define Georgia Maloney as a far right wing leader. Um, the neo fascist label is super interesting, just to get a little bit into the history before we move on. Um, so Georgia herself, she got her start, and it's said that she got her uh, her start in politics at the age of 15 when she joined what was called the MSI Party, and the MSI Party came about around 1945-1946, and it was created by those who were followers or admirers of Benito Mussolini. Benito Mussolini, you probably recognize that name um, if you went to grade school in the United States, at least. He was the leader of Italy during World War II. And he is the person who invented the term fascism and led the fascist party of Italy. And so this party, MSI, came about after Mussolini's reign as a sort of Um, a way of um, just continuing that legacy. And when Georgia was 15, she joined that party. And she, as that party evolved into various different parties, she continued on in that sort of far-right, neo-fascist realm um, until 2012 when she got the chance um, to break off from Silvio Berlusconi's party. Berlusconi has been prime minister of Italy three times. He was last prime minister in 2008 to 2011. She broke off from his party, created this new um, Fratelli d'Italia, or the Brothers of Italy, um, which which at that time in 2012 was very much founded on anti-immigrant sentiment, which is a hallmark of a far-right-wing party in Europe. Um, Most far-right-wing parties in Europe are entirely based, their foundations are based on anti-immigrant sentiment or xenophobia. Um, and then it was also quite ultra-nationalist at its beginning as well. So ultra-nationalist is like the step above nationalism, not just the idea that, you know, yourself and the self-interest of your country, that your country should come first. It's like that, but on steroids. And so her party has also been labeled ultra-nationalist. You might hear that term um, tossed around as well. So I wanted to mention that one just because you might hear it. And so back, you know, 2012 at the beginnings of this party, it definitely looked more far right than it could possibly look to a lot of people who a don't might not know a lot about Italy uh to a lot of Italians themselves inside Italy like I said lots of Italian publications are calling her right wing or center right and that's because she took an interesting pivot which is you know part of our conversation tonight between you and me Michael um is that she kind of did, I, Michael, and you and I were discussing this earlier, I call it kind of like the sort of American-esque general election type turn, where, you know, in order to win this prime ministership, she not only just had to show that she was going to be a smart leader because the other far-right-wing coalitions just haven't been able to hold on to power over the last, you know, three to four years because their leaders are just not adept at being leaders. Um, she just had to show that she was a smart leader and then sort of pivot towards 
much more pragmatic center-right type policies, even though, and again, this is why I consider her far right, I think her ideology is very much still centered in the far right, and I think will be interesting as she actually has to govern and lead over the next, you know, just few months to see if she returns to those roots or not, which do underlie or create the foundation for her politics and how much she'll still be pulled in that pragmatic direction. I mean, and what fights does she choose to actually exactly. take on? Is she you know, selective? Does she have in mind sort sort of a a a a, 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 a sort of a bearing capacity mm-hmm. for how much she could yes, push? Yes. Because, yeah. for example, um, when this party was first formed, she was definitely viewed as a Eurosceptic, which would, you know, um, sort of anybody who talks about her being neo-fascist or somehow part of fascism, like, you know, this would, you know, be a point on their side because she was against the Euro at first. But now who wouldn't be pro, pro-Euro, pro though, as a sort of pragmatic leader of Italy when Italy entirely benefits from the monetary policy set by the EU, from this strong currency. If Italy had to switch back to its own currency, it would be nowhere near the strength of the euro or many of the other powers that it's trying to compete, or not compete yeah. with, but, um, uh, you know, sure, stand with on the world, on the world stage in the G7 and the G8, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this party, you know, she was much more Eurosceptic up until, you know, a short while ago. Now, ever since Ukraine happened, she has, you know, said that she supports, you know, Italy sending arms to Ukraine and staying in the in NATO and being pro-NATO, where before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, she was not speaking positively about NATO. There were questions about, you know, would her party lead Italy to leave NATO and not just the Eurozone? But, you know, well, she's and right it's back like there. an international organization. And so, uh-huh. like, you know, for a nationalist to be like, well, you know, nationalist except for... Uh, you know, the EU and 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 sort of the Euro, uh-huh. the that is why NATO. She, you know. She's a chameleon. I am already. I am very intrigued by her because she is showing herself to be chameleon already, and able to. She's able to pivot this party and this coalition with these two other far right parties in this way where. it's confounding it's confounding for analysts it's confounding for experts because everybody would love to fit her in the fascist um sort of um box but michael you and i were talking earlier that you know benito mussolini and you know in most common definitions of fascism were created in the 30s and 40s and not during a time of high anti-immigrant sentiment whereas all these far-right parties in europe were mostly created in the 70s as a reaction to all the economic immigration of the golden age, the golden economic age in the 60s. Then the 70s, the gold standard went away and Europe tanked economically, just like the United States did, faced deflation, just like the United States did. And a lot of these parties were created to find some kind of scapegoat and it was immigrants. And so fascism just really isn't usually built on that particular kind of sentiment. It's more built on like sort of the ultra-nationalist, nativist sentiments, which are slightly different. And so that's why when you hear people sort of throwing these terms out, it's good to think through them a little bit. And that's what we wanted to do here with you today. Yeah. So, Melissa, let's let's pull back. I think part of what is confusing for... conservative Christians in Mm -hmm. particular is they they read 
Maloney being attacked, uh, being criticized as sort of like far right wing. Mm -hmm. And then like the excerpts of her speeches are like her saying, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a Christian. I'm a I'm a woman. I'm proud to be Italian. And uh and um I I think the critics in some cases rightly, right? Like Maloney does have a policy agenda, her party has a history. Mm-hmm. Those sort that that sort of rhetoric is weighted with specific policy solutions. But when I think Christians who don't know, when Christians in America are just sort of, you know, they weren't following the Italian election. They just sort of like see this and uh, hear people saying, you know, this fascist leader got elected. Can you believe what she's saying? Mm -hmm. And then then what she's saying is... The excerpts are very normal sounding. uh, You know, um, uh, people are like, it, it almost... Uh, re-emphasizes the very kind of thing that politicians like Maloney pick up on, which is mm-hmm. which is like I'm saying the things we used to be able to say, yeah. and and the things that uh, are uh, you know th- that uh, should should be should be normal uh, things that quote unquote they have taken away from us. And I think there are a lot of people like yeah, like what's so wrong with her saying I'm Christian and I'm a woman, and mm-hmm. so how does that um, you talked about it a bit, yeah. But talk a, talk about a, a bit more. What makes Maloney mm-hmm. far right wing in your view? Is is it is it is it that rhetoric, or is it something something else? It's ideology, which which plays out in like. Which plays out in policy in the end, which we have not seen her as prime minister yet. So this remains to be seen, which is why I'm saying it'll be so interesting to see just in the next few months, you know, when she's actually in in power, in leadership, what she actually does policy-wise to see if she continues down this route of actually moving towards the center, right? Like an actual true move. Or if she's a very adept smart politician who knows that those on the left in Europe or in America wherever will take her quotes and juxtapose them um against you know statements that she's a fascist or that she's far right or ultra nationalist when she's saying you know very sort of more normal mainstream things very establishment sounding things when she is anti-establishment because she because she has been as you noted uh, off uh, before we started recording uh, she she has been saying some of the typical what you'd want to hear an incoming pr- prime minister or president or whatever you know she's been saying that I'm going to be I'm going to be a prime for minister all for all at the, yep. all the people uh, you know I'm not uh, sort of uh, uh, I'm not here to sort of be an adversary uh, to- towards specific groups like that that kind of thing and and yes you kind of go okay like where is this going yeah yeah and and for the right you know you'd hear those you'd get those quotes and say you know everybody on the left is just panicking this is just the typical panic of the left and just throwing out you know accusations that have no merit or no base and this a similar sort of rewriting of image 
rhetoric, whatever you want to call it, has been happening with Viktor Orban in Hungary, mm. who is very much an authoritarian leader in Hungary, um, who has made actual policy moves, not just rhetorical moves that are like anti-free press, anti-free speech, like you you name a bunch of different things to the point where you'll hear me often say that Hungary should no longer be a part of the EU because it's gone down such an authoritarian route as Orban. Yeah, but yeah. Orban has, you know, glommed on to the right in, yes. specifically the the MAGA right in, in the United States um, and has gotten people like Tucker Carlson, so like mouthpieces to sort of just say, you know, Orban is just saying what we're all thinking and right. his policies aren't anywhere near what the left is saying about him. Yeah. He just wants, you know, um, his country to prosper and he wants to put Hungary first. Yeah, so I think th- this is... There are really two main points I, I want to make in this episode. And the first is, is right where you, you, you led us, Melissa. And that is sort of a, a warning both to not just the left, but really anyone from the center right to, to the left that has concerns about, opposes sort of this right-wing nationalist impulse. And really, I have this a similar warning for Christians and others who are just watching this from afar. And that warning is, um, we make a big mistake when we, conf- when we hear the emotion and the sort of identity naming the the sort of what Maloney uh, names as sort of a a personal sentiment or personal passions or sort of personal um, sort of sense of oneself we do we do a real disservice when we conflate that with Politics with what her her actual job is the, the the job of governance and same goes for Orban all, all this uh, on the left and for politicians who are running against people like Maloney running against people like Donald Trump they make a big mistake when you know they hear an emotional appeal. And because they read into it these policy solutions that they disagree with so vehemently, mm-hmm. they dismiss it all. Yep. Because they're worried that if you grant any sliver of sort of the motivation for the policy, that you legitimize the policy. And what I'd say, particularly after we've seen this game sort of play out over the last 10, 15 years in the US, uh, in Europe, is that actually, if you you decide to dismiss entirely, not hear, not even respond to, which doesn't mean you don't have to agree with it, you don't have to agree with where, where the thought goes, but, but when you decide that you're just not even going to hear or respond directly to those personal senses of motivation that a politician like Maloney so um, 
uh, and, and Trump and Orban so effectively tap into, then you actually give voters who hear those sorts of uh, those sorts of emotions, those sort of identifications, and say, "Yeah, I kind of see that." You give them with nowhere else to go than with the policy solutions to those problems that the right is offering, mm-hmm. and sort of the the parallel warning or, or sort of suggestion for Christians and others who are sort of watching these debates from afar is um, don't follow the sort of cultural appeal, which is, which is really not fundamental to politics, to politics as governance. Just because you see merit in the cultural appeal, don't allow that to carry you without thought into supporting the policy solutions of the people who are naming these things. And I feel like we can, uh, this happens all the time across the board uh, in many different ways, but it happens especially here. It's like, oh, Maloney is saying these things. She's the kind of leader we need. And you'll say that based on rhetoric, but not knowing what any of the policies uh-huh. she's, solution, she, she's proposing might be. <laughs> uh, and and so, so, so that's, that's a critical point. I think the other point I want to move to, Melissa, is you, I think that there can be a bit of a vacuum that is left when when the right is able to tap into such deep and profound senses of identity and a sense of sort of fragility and unmooring. Mm-hmm. I think the response of the left is too often, man, get with the times. Like mm-hmm. this is where history is going. Like, do you want to be left behind? Mm-hmm. And if one side is appealing to a person's sense of uh, identity, of who they are, their sense of self and community, the do you want to be left behind is not really an effective answer to that. Because what you're saying is leave behind yourself, leave behind your sense of identity, leave behind the sources of, 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 of values that you have because th- they no longer work. Well... If if one alternative is saying you, I see you for who you are and how you see yourself, and the other the other side is saying, like who you are, like it just isn't working anymore. <laughs> um, like yeah, that's and a, especially that's a very uh, I, I that that can lose some elections, <laughs> and especially for usually a group of um, people or voters, whoever whatever you want to call them, who are already feeling a deep, deep, deep sense of insecurity because usually these types of politicians like a Maloney, like an Orban, like a Trump are hyper-focused on using security terms for basically every area of life, not just actual like yes, yes, yes. real war time, like war or um, national security. And so you're using that kind of rhetoric on people who already have this really heightened sense of fear because m- much of the um, 
much of, again, I'm going after underlying ideology, even if some fluffy rhetoric is placed on top, a lot of the underlying ideology is very much fear-based. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you know, I think in Italy, this is a case. I think you could make this argument in other contexts. Like, it's important to note, you know, Maloney is coming to power after um, years of really technocratic rule yes. that I think, you know, analysts would would say, you know, some of the the leadership of people like Monty uh, or Draghi or Draghi, yes, Draghi especially, um, like Italy could be so much worse off if they didn't yeah. have those hands at those the wheel, those economic sort of minds. Uh, but for the average Italian, you're going, we, we've invested in, we've had basically a decade of continuous sort of technocratic uh, sort of um, uh, uh, rule and uh, not, you know, uh, uh, leadership. And, uh, you know, we're on the brink of not being able to heat our homes, you yes. know, this or this yes. winter. So, it, you know, I also think there was a sense of of disruption, not mm-hmm. too dissimilar from American voters giving Trump a chance in, in 2016. I, Melissa, you said something. We've been talking about this all this week. Mm-hmm. And this is something we've talked about before. And... Um, it, it was just a really helpful reminder to me, you know, just a just a pickup. So if the alternative to offering as an objection to sort of nativist appeals like Maloney's and anti uh, anti immigration appeals like Maloney's, uh, um, especially when it's grounded in a preservation of values. Mm-hmm. Yes, you could respond to that saying, no, this is 21st century. Uh, if you want to thrive economically, that's going to require sort of a, a, a globalization. It's going to require a, a flat earth. It's going to sort of all, all this. A- another way to approach it uh, is to offer... an identity-based and values-resourced positive approach to questions of migration and questions of diversity and mm-hmm. questions of living together. Uh, you can draw on uh, a whole range of theological resources uh, for this work. In Italy, for instance, uh, the Catholic Church is still quite powerful. It's, I mean, it's very Catholic. <laughs> it's a very Catholic country. Well, Catholicism has some resources for this. It was very interesting. The Vatican released a pretty stern mm-hmm. statement in response to Maloney's victory, suggesting that it was not going to sort of uh, uh, sit back uh, and or hold its, its tongue on issues that... Uh, that the Vatican and that the Catholic and that Catholic social teaching speak to that Maloney uh, has has run afoul of. But I want to talk about this earlier example of, of what I'm what I'm offering as potentially a 
a, a better way forward of rejecting sort of these anti-immigrant uh, uh, sentiments. And we've talked about Chancellor Merkel. Um, mm-hmm. that we're, 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 we're fans. We're stands. Uh, and in 2010, uh, as migration and multiculturalism uh, were beginning to really press on uh, Merkel politically in a significant way, she went to a gathering of her party and made a provocative argument. Uh, Someone who attended the town hall that she was at asked her about uh, particularly uh, Muslim uh, uh, immigrants to the country. And Merkel, who, by the way, is the daughter of a pastor, said something fascinating. She said, uh, she told her party, quote, we don't have too much Islam. We have too little Christianity. We have too few discussions about the Christian view of mankind. Uh, Merkel went on to say that the what people viewed as a crisis, what people viewed as a challenge to German identity, what people viewed as a challenge to sort of uh, uh, national values, she viewed it as an opportunity to talk about, quote, the values that guide us and about our Judeo-Christian tradition. We have to stress this again with confidence. And so, you know, obviously different countries have different sort of context, different leaders have different sort of convictions. And I'm not suggesting sort of um, this as a, as a strategy so much as I'm saying directly to Christians. I've just seen a lot of chatter. And frankly, as you know, Melissa, but, um, well, I, I get where it's coming from. And it makes a t- ton of sense. And if one side is saying... This is the way to embrace your Christian faith. And the other side is sort of uh, not mentioning that at all or even suggesting that embracing your Christian faith or acting on Christian values is sort of antithetical to their project. That's going to be a real... It, 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 It means that you need to resource your own thinking about things as opposed to taking marching orders and sort of being too easily led by cultural appeals of politicians. Uh, And instead, you need to be able to say, look, even though Christian appeals are being made to me on this basis, my view of the dignity of the human person lead me in a different direction. And so, uh, so, so that that that's really the um, uh, th- there is it is not going to be fruitful to ignore some of the identity and values based claims of the right, and instead an alternative should be offered, not just on the level of policy but on the level of how the case is being made. And in lieu of that, Christians still have a responsibility 
to know their own values, their own convictions, the resources of their own tradition enough to push back even when the sort of political binaries don't map completely on uh, to, uh, to, to those identity claims and those emotional appeals uh, and, and uh, sort of the, 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 the stated sources of values. And I just want to reiterate a point that you made a few minutes ago that this idea that the way to um, combat or lead people who have been sort of sucked in by the fear-mongering or fear-based politics, the, the way of um, leading those people is not to um, say, oh, you're being left behind, but it's actually the positive vision. And what I mean, what we mean by positive vision is for showing anyone who is more attracted to this fear-based ideology that the things that they're afraid of can actually cease to be a threat to them, not that they're just not Spartan being left behind, um, that there's no basis for whatever fears that they have. It's showing them that the, whatever they fear doesn't actually have to threaten them. Yeah, no, I think it's one of the biggest mistakes that we can make in our politics uh, is to tell people that what they're experiencing, what what's playing out in their lives just like doesn't exist or doesn't matter. Um, this is like a trope, but like you need to meet people where they are you need to be able to try and build some common sense of reality and then your solutions your way forward uh, sort of in the midst of that reality might be very different than what they're what they are drawn to what they think they're drawn to uh, but make your case from there not telling folks that they're irrational or ignorant for even having the concerns that they they have uh, that's that's typically not going to be productive in a in a democratic environment and so i hope that's helpful for you there's so much more to the discuss on on this sort of set of topics but there's been much discussion over the last week. We just wanted to sort of speak into that. You know, it's been confusing for a lot of folks to see how uh, this conversation has sort of unfolded. So hopefully we gave you um, some, some food for thought. Next week will be less than a month away from midterm elections. And so we'll, I think, increasingly talk about how the midterms are shaking up between now and and election day but that's all for now thank you so much for listening this has been where we are bye don't be so hard to reach just pick up your phone tell me where you'll be because i gotta know